0: Hey, thanks for listening to the Grace Church Sermon Podcast. For more information on Grace Church, visit us at gracemc.org. All right, everybody. Guess what we do this morning? We jump into a new sermon series. You ready? You excited? All right. Um, let, it, here's the question that we want us to, to kind of start off with. Um, how important it, is it to make... And keep a promise. How important is it it to to be trustworthy? Uh, I remember a a casual promise I made to a girl in college for our very first date. Her name was Kim. I asked her to go to the Michael Murphy concert on campus. And and I know you guys have no idea who that is, but he's kind of like a crooner, kind of like a Sam Smith or, or Bruno Mars of the days today. And um, so anyway, so um, I asked her to, to go. I invited her to go with me, and she actually said, oh, can you get tickets? And I was like, you bet I can. So as soon as I hung up, I called the uh, ticket office, and guess what? Sold out. Sold out. Uh, so promise made, but promise not kept. Um, but it turned out all right. You know, I invited her out for ice cream, and you know what? We ended up getting married. 41 years now, so, so yeah, that was some great ice cream. <laughs> now what about God? Does God make any promises for us? Can we take what he says to the bank? Ask yourself this question. What would you like an all-knowing, all-powerful, everywhere present, loving, holy, and just God to promise you, I think that's a great question because your honest answer to that probably says more about you than you might think. In Scripture, what uh, what God does, uh, He He does indeed make promises, promises of different kinds. And you may not have heard it said this way, but some of God's promises are called prophecies. Here, God's declared in advance events that He's going to cause to happen. And they've all come true. A second, some of God's promises are declarations of healing. God speaks words of physical, emotional, relational restoration. And it happens. Some of his promises are descriptions of his own unchanging character. Meaning God reveals his attributes, his divine attributes, and he never ever expresses himself any differently than he describes. Then finally, some of his uh, promises are directions for us to how to live with eternity in mind. God gives enduring wisdom for instruction to guide us here on earth because what we do here echoes for eternity. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we learn a lot about God and his promises through his son, Jesus. Jesus lives a life of promise that perfectly fulfills these ancient prophecies. Jesus miraculously heals people. He clearly reveals God's majesty and boldly manifests eternal life for all to see. I mean, not once did Jesus stumble. Not once did he do the wrong thing. Not once did he fail to help others the way God wanted him to. He is all about the kingdom of heaven. And as we dive into the Gospel of Matthew this morning, I'm, I'm only going to briefly reference the first two chapters because those refer to Christ's coming, His birth, and, and we look at those at the Advent. Realize that uh, Matthew uses more Old Testament quotes than any of the Gospels. In Matthew, there are at least 60 quotations of Old Testament texts and numerous other allusions to Old Testament texts. One of the reasons we entitled this sermon series, A Life of Promise, is for all of these promise fulfillment passages. Promises made, promises kept, statements based on Old Testament texts. And there are at least 10 of these ancient promises made, promises fulfilled, just in Matthew's Gospel. The best way to understand these prophecies about Jesus is seeing that the life of Jesus fulfills or completes all the messianic promises of God found in Scripture. The way Jesus says this uh, is found in Matthew 5, verses 17 and 18. This This is Jesus talking. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until uh, heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So everything in the Old Testament, everything the Old Testament said about God and the, the promised Messiah has and is being fulfilled. Every promise is being fulfilled. Ancient promises that are hundreds, even thousands of years old. Have borne the test of time. And others are being fulfilled right now, all over the world, as people are finding their need for a Savior and experiencing that promised salvation. When God makes a promise, He keeps it to prove His indomitable love for you. If you read Matthew 1 and 2, you see that Jesus' birth was promised by God. God made sure that when Jesus shows up, that there has already been someone preparing the people to be looking out for and anticipating Jesus' coming. And he did it through a man that was promised hundreds of years earlier to come and do just that. That man's name is John. You might know him as John the Baptizer or John the Baptist. And John has come at a time where the the nation and its leadership were destitute. They've been looking for God to show up, at least to say something through a prophet, but it has been nothing but crickets for 400 years. Spiritually, emotionally, physically, politically, militarily, Israel has been sinking into despair in the silence from God. There's a national and personal dread in the lives of Israel They were asking themselves, where is God in all of our despair? So how about you? Are you starting this year without having heard from God in a long time? Are you feeling uncertain about your future? Are you wondering if God cares what's happening to you? If so, you are right where Jesus shows up, where he shows up to care about you. That's where we are when we come to Matthew chapter 3. Starting with the first three verses, we read this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. When writers of Scripture want to remake or emphasize a point of an ancient prophecy, they often do it by pointing to where it was said originally. And we do this. I mean, many of us by now have written uh, term papers or research papers, or we put together a, a work proposal, and you cite your reliable sources in those. Matthew does this by referencing the book of Isaiah, which contained that prophecy of 700 years earlier. Matthew, throughout his gospel, points out some of these promises made, promises kept of John and Jesus' life. These quotes prove that these ancient prophecies, these, these promises concerning John and Jesus made hundreds of years before, came true. We can't look at all of these this morning, but we can look, at least look at Isaiah's 700 year old promise and description of this promised person. Isaiah 40 verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, this verse uses a physical road construction as a spiritual metaphor. For obvious reasons of speed and ease and ancient travel and, and safety, an ambassador would travel ahead of his returning king to make sure that there was a smooth path, that there was a road constructed for him. Isaiah 40 is quoted here in Matthew 3:3, 3, 3, as the spiritual fulfillment of an ambassador, an ambassador coming and his work." John the Baptist is the ambassador. He's preparing the hearts of Israel through a call of repentance, a call to repentance to welcome Jesus, their king, who brings with him the inauguration, the start of the kingdom of heaven on earth. John is calling for people to to clear the obstacles out of their hearts that might hinder the reception of their Lord and King. He calls for people to get themselves ready to prepare their heart, to prepare their lives. For the arrival of the king and the kingdom of heaven. Now, this would have been a very convicting and compelling message, but it also would have been a very exciting message, too. By this time, the people of Israel had had their fill of Greek and Roman kingdoms and those rulers just dominating them. They desperately wanted to return to the the promised earthly glories of the ancient monarchy under King David and King. Solomon and their descendants, but that time has not come. It's not come yet. That earthly national promise to Israel awaits fulfillment even today. But we can say that the kingdom of heaven has come in the person of Jesus. It has started, but the full earthly manifestation of that kingdom has not yet arrived. What's evident in the fulfillment of Isaiah 40 verse three is that the one, the ambassador who is to spiritually prepare the nation of Israel has come. And he, John, John the Baptist, just as the ancients or just as the ancient prophets, prophets promised. And the spiritual preparations of, of John can best be described as repentance, certainly a baptism of repentance. Let's see the impact that John had in verses 4 through 6. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him, and they were, being, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, interestingly, the description of John's appearance and his diet, it's, it's supposed to be making an impact on us today, just as it did to those that John spoke to in his day. And you may, you and I may, we may not get that, but that's because we don't understand what's happening in comparison to the Old Testament prophets. So recognize this. John the Baptist is the last of the Old Testament prophets. In Matthew, John is likened to the Old Testament prophet Elijah who lived around 850 BC and his ministry is described in 1st and 2nd Kings. There Elijah is described as a man who wore a garment of hair, a belt of leather about his waist. This attire later became regularly associated with Old Testament prophets. And John the Baptist's austere clothing and personality and moving at the Lord's leading through the wilderness area of Israel created a a distinctly bold and prophetic kind of ministry. John's diet of locusts and honey, that was the staple of the poorest in the society. He was also humble and peaceable with people's whose hearts sought to live rightly before God. Those people, as opposed to the religious leaders, most often responded to John's call for repentance. Being more desperate to hear from God and John's call for repentance resulted in people sensing conviction from God. And repentant people were baptized in the water of the Jordan River. That was symbolic of the spiritual cleansing and commitment John's call to repentance is like the prophets of the Old Testament. He's calling people into a right relationship with God, and that's got to affect every aspect of their lives. And that's true for us today as well. Repentance always calls for a change in a person's attitude and actions towards God, before God. Uh, Their attitude... A right attitude, a repentant attitude would impact their actions and give new direction to their lives. But as similar as John's message is to the Old Testament prophets, there's a distinctly new sound to it. He calls people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is now here. That's new. It's been crickets for 400 years. The kingdom has come near in the soon-arriving Messiah. And verse 5 says that not the leaders, not the religious leaders, not the spiritual uh, power brokers or the elite, but the common people all over the region were responding to John's message. Their confession of sin and repentance was preparing their hearts and instilling hope. They are looking for the promises of God. As we noted earlier, John is the one foretold by Isaiah who would prepare Israel for their king and his kingdom's arrival. Jesus himself also backs this up with a comment on John the Baptist. Later in the book of Matthew, Matthew 11, verses 13 through 15, we hear Jesus say this, For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah to come. He who has ears to hear. Let him hear. And then furthermore, we, we know this from our Advent reading. In the Gospel of Luke, the angel of the Lord tells Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, that John will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in spirit and power of Elijah to turn, their hearts, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What that angel said to Zechariah is a quote right out of Malachi written 400 years earlier. And about now, only Old Testament scholars out there are still awake in this message. I get it. But I reference all these ancient texts to make this point. When you more clearly see as God sees, you more courageously do as God says. I probably should repeat that. When you more clearly see as God sees, you more courageously do as God says. God makes good on his promises. You can trust him. He promises a lot of good. Especially for those whose hearts are set on Jesus, who is the promised king of heaven and savior Of the world. So, where's your heart? Where's your heart right now? Is it on the road to confession and repentance to receive the King's gift of righteousness? Is it filled with a sense of hope of what God can do in and through you? As I said, John was humble, more peaceable with the people who rightly sought to to live honorably before God, faithfully before God. But he was way more abrupt. He was way more abrasive with the hypocrites and the self-righteous leaders. Verse 7. But when he, meaning John the Baptist, when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious elite, and we saw them coming to his baptism, he said, "'You brood of vipers!' that'll make you friends. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here John is he's calling them out. He's calling out the hierarchy of religious leaders for their hypocrisy and their self-righteousness. He calls them vipers, poisonous, deceptive snakes. And next week we will see this serpent motif strike again. John is saying that they're deceiving themselves. They're suffering from their own poison if they think that, that their family tree makes them a good tree. Because their actions reveal who they really are. John finishes speaking to them with these words. Verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Here he's pointing, John's pointing to the promised Messiah, Savior of the world, who will also be the judge of the world. There's an eternal accounting coming, and it's in the hands of the one mightier than I, John says. There is coming an impending judgment where the redeemed will be rewarded and the unredeemed will be condemned. John says this is not just some unlikely someday. No, this is an unavoidable judgment day. And it's coming. Now in these last five verses we see Jesus, John, God the Father and the Holy Spirit, all come together for the greatest promise ever. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so for now, for thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's what John the Baptist saw. Remember we said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance? That meant it was a spiritual practice, a spiritual practice that acknowledged one's sin, and it was a commitment, a promise to turn away from living sinfully. John knows that Jesus has no sin. In fact, John calls Jesus the spotless Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. This Old Testament sacrificial language means that Jesus is without sin, So, a baptism of repentance does not apply to Jesus. And so, John tries to stop Jesus, tries to stop him from being baptized. Basically, John's saying, Look, you can't be baptized with my baptism because mine is a baptism for sinners in need of repentance. So, what John is saying to Jesus is, You're not a sinner. (laughs) You're not a sinner. He's declaring, on the other hand, that I need to be baptized by you. I am a sinner. I and everyone else are sinners, but you, Jesus, not you. So, why did Jesus insist on being baptized? It's to be identified with sinners. How so? Well, back in Isaiah 53, verses 11 and 12, it says of the promised. Suffering, Servant, King, and all those titles apply to Jesus. That by his wounds we are healed. He shall bear the iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered, identified with transgressors, identified with sinners. To summarize what many Bible scholars say, Jesus submitted to John's baptism symbolically identifying with repentant sinners who were seeking salvation. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, this is where it began. Uh, This is probably the first time publicly that that Jesus has revealed the promise that the Apostle Paul would later share with the Corinthian church that for our sake, God made Jesus to, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. Jesus was sinless when he was crucified on the cross. And he was sinless at baptism. But Jesus obeyed God the Father from baptism to burial. So he could receive our sin and we could receive his righteousness. And that's why Jesus says of his own baptism, why it must be done to fulfill not some, but all righteousness, to complete all that God had set out for him to do. Jesus is saying that it's the will of God for him to be baptized by John in order to be identified with sinners, with me, with you. God made promises and God kept those promises. Every promise, all for your good, for my good, has and is and will be kept. And Matthew shows here that God kept his ancient promise by sending John and Jesus. And the words that God chose to describe Jesus are also steeped in ancient prophecies. When God speaks in verse 17 and says, this is my son, he uses the text right out of the Messianic Psalm 2. That passage describes the the future Messianic king who is to come. In that Psalm, God is saying, this is my son, this is the king, Who's going to rule the nations. Nations will conspire against them, but he will rule them. This is Psalm 2. This is my son. Jesus is this holy Messiah who's going to to come in strength and rule all nations. And when God the Father said of Jesus, with whom I am well pleased, that's another quote. That's a quote right out of Isaiah 42. In several chapters of Isaiah, chapter 42 and 53 especially, we see comparisons and contrasts to this messianic king who is also a suffering servant. The holy king is also the suffering servant. That's the reason why John the Baptist is confused. John knows he shouldn't be baptizing Jesus. Jesus should be baptizing him. Jesus says, no. I've come to be the substitute. I've come to identify with you and others. To fulfill the greatest promise ever made. I have come to take your sinful place. I'm the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So as I close this morning, the most amazing promise that we can ever have fulfilled is salvation through Jesus. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is not our example, though. He's way more than that, meaning Jesus didn't come to show us how to work hard and earn or merit eternal life. It's not that at all. It's impossible. But Jesus is our substitute. He does what we can never do. He lived a perfect, holy, sinless life and offers his righteousness, his righteous life in payment to God for our sin, gives it to us as a gift. It is grace to us through faith. God makes these promises to us. God promises to be just. So he says evil must be punished. Otherwise, there would be no justice. And amazingly, he's a compassionate God as well. A God who, sees, who says there must be grace too. There must be mercy too. And only he knows and is powerful enough to do those both. So stick around. Stick around through our study of Matthew and, and you're, and you're going to see what God says. He promises us this. He says, we are more sinful than we are ever imagined and we are more loved than we dare dream. And that God's grace not only provides for our eternity, but empowers us right here, right now, for the most fulfilling life possible. You can trust God. You can trust God for a joy-filled eternity and an earthly victory. Next week. It's going to be great. Next week, we're going to see how, um, how we can make a life-changing promise to God and ourselves and keep it. Next week, Jesus keeps his promise to be holy. And he also shows us how to fight against the evil one, how to win the battle over sin and destructive habits. So based on this passage, here's some things that you can think about to start your week. Application number 1. Find out what God promises you. Because he has some promises for you and he will deliver on those promises. One way to find out is by starting to read or maybe reread the gospel of Matthew. That's what we're going to be doing this spring. This this winter and the spring. Second, make a promise to God that will strengthen or deepen your relationship with him. Whether you keep that promise flawlessly or struggle in it, I promise you that you will grow through it. You will grow through it. You will learn something in it. So let's take a couple minutes to pray. Father, we know. We know and we want to know even more, even more deeply. May our lives reflect our commitment to you that you are a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. Father, be at work in us and through us. May we bring glory to you as we live our lives. May our lives be a reflection of your Son's life. And we ask this in His name. Amen.